hymns. Uh, what should I do with my life? I think that's the first really important question that anyone asks themselves as they're growing up. They start to think, what should I do with my life? And it's one of the most important questions that you'll ask. And you know, while, while life will make a lot of choices for you, a lot of choices that are outside of your control, um, what we do with what we've been given is our choice. The things that we'll commit ourselves to, the things we'll give ourselves to, the things that we'll give our energy and our resources to. And those choices, you know, we make them, they open doors for some opportunities, but they'll close doors on other opportunities. So the person who devotes his or her life to neurosurgery is probably not likely to be the founder of the next big booming tech company, right? To, 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 to pursue something is to close the door on other things. Well, Jesus gave his Holy Spirit to his church. And that spirit creates new life. The Apostle Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Apart from that spirit, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. But given that spirit of the risen Christ, we are alive. The Bible is clear that being given the spirit and walking by that spirit are not the same things. The first of those in receiving the spirit were quite passive. But in the second, we're called to be active. Being filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, are things that the Bible calls and commands us to do. God didn't save blocks of wood. He saved human beings made in His image. And He saved us of love so that we might respond with love and that we might follow Him fully and freely. And so Paul writes to the churches at Galatia, he says, walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. The Holy Spirit gives us life, not merely so that we can enjoy a good and blessed life, but to empower the church that is all of his redeemed people for the ministry that he entrusts to us. I'm going to read today from John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. And no, this is not deja vu. This is the passage I read last week. But I want to focus on a different aspect of it today. This is God's word. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive any one of his sins, they are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Our Father, fill us 
today uh, with your grace. Father, you've given us of your spirit. Help us, we pray, by the promptings of your word to walk in that spirit. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, since the 19th century, we've often called Matthew 28 the Great Commission. There Jesus says, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, um, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And while in Matthew 28, Jesus tells us um, that the mission of the church is to make disciples, and he tells us means by which to do it, by going, by baptizing, and by teaching, it's not the only place that Jesus speaks to his disciples about the commission that he's giving to them. And in John chapter 20, there's indicated here the message that he sends them with the motivation from which they're to go and the goal of that commission. And in the midst of all this, we see the risen Christ breathing the Holy Spirit upon his disciples. Now, I pointed out last week that this is really an anticipation. It's a symbolic anticipation of the spirit that is going to come at Pentecost. The, whole, the risen Christ breathes his spirit upon his church to empower the church for the ministry that he entrusts her with. And that ministry begins with its focused upon a message, and the message is a message of peace. So we're told that the risen Christ comes and he stands among the disciples. This is the first that he's with all of the disciples. And the word that he speaks to them is peace. He says, peace be with you. In fact, he'll speak it again in verse 21. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. It's important, I think, as we look at this to understand that Jesus is not just merely wishing them well. He's not wishing them peace. It's not, uh, it's not like the, 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 the 1960s that some of you have read about in history books and some of you have lived through when people would say, you know, peace. And they take that victory sign, they turned it into a peace sign. The idea was peace through victory, but But listen, what was that? It it was a wish. It was a goal. It was a hope. It was a desire. But what Jesus does is more than wishing peace. He told them before his crucifixion, you remember in chapter 14, he said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you do I give to you. So don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. It's not merely a wish for peace. You know, Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9. I can't believe it's October already. And and pretty soon, as Craig Lane warns us every year, Christmas will be upon us. The Advent season is coming. And, And in connection with that, we think of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, for to us a child is born, a son is given, and what's one of the names that he's given? He's the Prince of Peace. 
Hebrews 13 tells us that God, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, is the God of peace. The gospel itself in Ephesians 6 is called the gospel of peace. Jesus said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. You know, the the world's peace is kind of like whitewash or paint on a decaying structure. You know, throughout... uh, Throughout our lives, and I think back when my wife and I were young, and uh, we, we lived in some pretty frightening places. Maybe some of you did when you were young, too. And, uh, and there were some places where I hope that the structure was sound. I can tell you that the, that the trim wasn't. It was rotted away. But you know how they fixed that? They just painted it. And it kind of looked okay. It was a little bubbly and a, a little rough, but it looked okay as long as you didn't dig too deep. That's what the world's peace is like. Peace in the world, of the world, from the world, it's always temporary, doesn't last, doesn't go deep, doesn't fix anything. But by his death and his resurrection, Jesus (laughs) accomplished peace. Paul says in Romans 5, he says, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a peace that is destined to engulf the whole earth. You know, again, because we're coming up on Christmas time, right? We read it every year. We've got the announcement of the birth of Christ to the shepherds out around Jerusalem. And what's their message? It's peace, on earth. We're told in Colossians chapter 1 that through the blood of the cross, God will reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. It's, it's a peace that's not merely a well-wishing. It's a peace that is real because it starts with healing the breach that is really the reason that we don't have peace. It's because of our alienation from God. And so in his resurrection, Jesus comes and he announces peace. And he sends his church with a message. And that message is peace. Now, you know, the fact that Jesus said in Matthew 10, do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword doesn't contradict what he said when he told us that he left us peace. Because when Jesus tells his disciples that in Matthew 10, he's not speaking about the message. He's not speaking about the mission, but he's speaking about what his disciples will encounter. He's he's preparing them because it's painful when you go in peace and the response is not peace. You know, it's, it's significant to note when you read through the Gospels, maybe you've never noticed it before, but it's significant to note when you, when you look at how things have been throughout the history of the world and how they're in the world today, that Jesus in his ministry, wherever he went, Jesus never stirred up any trouble. 
It was those who opposed him who did. In Matthew chapter 8, we read about Jesus uh, going over uh, to the Gadarenes, and there he meets a man uh, who is uh, under demonic influence, and Jesus delivers him. And uh, as we start to look at chapter 9, we see that the townspeople kind of come flooding down to the banks of the river to greet Jesus. But if you thought that the reason for that was because they wanted to welcome him for what he had done, you'd be wrong. It says that they begged him to leave. And so what did Jesus do? He didn't say, well, I have as much right to be here as anybody. He didn't say, you people may not want me here, but maybe there's somebody here who does. We read Jesus got in the boat and he left and he went to the other side. And whenever we read about trouble surrounding Jesus, and there's plenty of it, it's always instigated by others, usually, usually the religious leaders and purists of Judea. Wherever the gospel goes, and by the way, you need to be prepared for that. As, as I've as I've prayed about the opportunities that God seems to be laying in our lap for the gospel, wherever the gospel goes, at some juncture, there will be trouble. There'll be trouble. But that trouble never comes or never should come from those who are entrusted with the gospel. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 12, he said, if possible, and as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. The reality is, is that it doesn't always or entirely depend upon us. But the message is one of peace, and those who bring it do so with, as Paul says in Romans 10, their feet fitted with the gospel of peace. And Paul, as he speaks about that, quotes the prophet Isaiah, and he says, uh, how lovely are the feet of them that bring good news. That word good news is the word gospel. And if you read that quote from Isaiah 52, go back and read Isaiah, it fills that out. They come announcing peace, and they bring salvation. It saddens me that the that the church in our nation today so often brings shame on the gospel by living and carrying out those things that Paul identifies as the works of the flesh. Idolatry and putting things other than the kingdom of God first as their goal and aim. Fits of rage, rivalry, and dissension. Ask the average unchurched neighbor today what the church stands for, and you're very likely to hear a litany of what the church is against rather than what the church is for. And you'll hear about moralism and politics, but very little about Jesus and his peace. 
It's interesting that the Pharisees were very well known for the things that they were against. And I think sometimes I fear that the, that the, that the modern conservative church in America, if it gave verbal expression to the gospel that their acts proclaim, their message would be, no need for Christ, just follow the example of the Pharisees. The spirit-empowered ministry, which carries the message of peace, must spring from a specific motive. Jesus said, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. So I'm sending you as the Father has sent me. So I'm sending you. How did God send his son? What was the motivation for sending his son? We don't have to go out of the gospel of John to answer that question. Jesus himself speaks the words in chapter 3. God loved the world so that he gave his only son. In John's first letter, 1 John, as John reflects on that, he says... In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God sent his son out of love. The son comes out of love. And now Jesus says to his church, as the father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Jesus sends us out of love and our Motivation for going must be love. Now, is it possible? Is it possible to bring the message of the gospel from some other motive? It might surprise you to find out that the Apostle Paul says it is. As he's in prison and he writes to the church at Philippi, he says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in my chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. I'll tell you, those words show the the big-heartedness of the Apostle Paul. That that his desire, and shows up his love, that his desire is that Christ be brought to people. He doesn't care how it affects him. And he doesn't care about the bad effects of their preaching that it might have on him if only and truly Christ is preached. But two observations need to be made about that. The first is that it is true that God can use evil men with evil motives to communicate his truth and to speak his truth. We've seen it already happen in this gospel in the words uttered by Caiaphas in chapter 11, who being that the high priest that year said as they argued over what they should do with Jesus, he said, you know nothing at all. It's better that one man should die than that all the people should die. And John says that Caiaphas didn't speak this just of his own, that being 
high priest that year, he spoke about what Jesus would do in his death. And so it's true that God can use evil men with evil motives to speak the truth, but those who preach the gospel with a motive other than love for those to whom they're sent will not long preach the true gospel. Their motive will affect their message and they'll substitute some other message for it pretending that love is the motive. Christian nationalism is a movement that is waxed and waned since the time of the Reformation. The idea was the brainchild of Swiss theologian Thomas Erastus and his views came to be known to church uh, students of historical theology as Erastianism. And Erastianism maintains that the church in its mission is subservient to the goals, the aims, and the good of the nation. An iteration of it arose in Germany during World War II. And the adherents of the Christian national movement called themselves the Deutsche Christians, the German Christians. And they mocked the historic Christian faith's call to love for enemies, to care for the least of these. And they said that that those ideas of, of, of supporting the weak, that that was negative Christianity, that they were preaching a positive Christianity. And that positive Christianity they maintained was to be rooted in love. But as Ludwig Mueller, the leader of the Deutsche Christians movement said, and I quote him, it is a love that has a hard warrior-like face. It hates everything soft and weak because it knows that all life can then only remain healthy and fit for life when everything that is antagonistic to life, the rotten and the indecent, is destroyed. It was the perfect segue to the T4 euthanasia euthanasia program that systematically began killing people with disabilities out of love. And today I see American Christians being taken again increasingly with a Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism uses Christian language, but it imbues it with meanings that are opposite the meaning of the Bible in much the same way that Gnosticism took Christian language, but imbued it with meanings that were different than what the Bible meant by it. And Christian nationalism is no more Christian than Christian Gnosticism is Christian. The motivation that Jesus sends his church with is a motivation of love. It's a love that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and loves even enemies and prays even for persecutors. The risen Christ has breathed upon us his Holy Spirit to empower his church for the ministry that he's entrusted to us. And that ministry brings a message of peace from a motivation of love and it has a goal of reconciliation peace be with you as the father has sent me i'm sending you 
And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. It's important, I think, to underscore what those words that Jesus spoke, what they do not mean. Jesus is not saying here that the apostles, that the church, that pastors have the power, the prerogative to forgive sin. The scribes were quite right when uh, Jesus being, um, being presented with a man who was lame before healing him said, take heart, your sins were forgiven. The scribes were quite right when they asked the question, who can forgive sin but God alone? Certainly we have no right not to forgive sin when those sins are against us. We prayed today, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And Jesus says in connection with that, he says, for if you do not forgive others their sins, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your sins. But what Jesus says in this passage is not about personal forgiveness. It's about forgiveness and reconciliation to God. And that can be brought about only by Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. He is the one who forgives. But we are called to be the announcers and the assurers of it. And taking note of the tenses of the verbs here, it would perhaps be better to translate these words, if you have forgiven anyone's sins, their sins have been forgiven. It's not that apostles and pastors and teachers forgive sins. It's rather that they're called by God to assure people in Jesus' name that if they repent of their sins and turn to him in faith that their sins are forgiven. And while that may be the special calling and task of apostles And pastors, the ability to do that is not limited merely to them. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you also have the task of assuring those who repent of their sins and turn to Jesus in faith that God has forgiven them of their sins. This is the mission that Jesus has given to his church. And he's given to us his Holy Spirit to empower us for the task. Christ has given us new life. What will you do with the life that Christ has given you? He's given to us a message of peace. What are you doing with that message? When people around you Listen to the message that your life conveys. Is that the message it hears, a message of peace, or is it some other message? And the motivation of our message is to be love for those to whom God sends us, for those who are lost. When the world around looks at you, looks at me, looks at the church, does it conclude like the, like the pagans did of the early church? My, how those Christians love. Or would it conclude that it's something other 
than love that motivates the church. And what's the goal of what we do? Is it to bring reconciliation between people and God and people with other people? Or do people look at the church today and think that its goal is to foment division? We can't complain that we're ill-equipped to do what God called us to do because he's given to us the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Peter writes that his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who calls us by his own glory and goodness. The risen Christ has breathed upon us his Holy Spirit to empower the church for the ministry that he's entrusted to us. What choices are you making with the life that Christ has given you? Are you walking by the flesh or by the spirit? Father, as we examine uh, our hearts In our lives, we pray, Father, that you would fill us uh, with your spirit to illuminate uh, our lives. As we look to your word, Lord, help us to see our reflection accurately. And then uh, help us, Father, as as James warned us, not to be like those uh, who look in a mirror and then turn and forget what we've seen. But, Father, as we examine ourselves in the light of your word, uh, to take whatever steps that we need to take. And, Father, we thank you that in Jesus you've redeemed us, that you've reconciled us to God, and you've entrusted to us, to the whole church, this ministry of reconciliation to bring a message of peace from a motive of love with the goal that there would be other sons and daughters, others who would be reconciled to Christ. And Father, we, we, we pour out our prayers to you to help us to do that. And we'll give you the praise as you answer our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.